Anyways, uh, it's an honor and pleasure to be able to uh, preach the Word uh, with us this morning, and we're going to be in James chapter 3, so feel free to open your Bibles now. Uh, so when I was attending Bible college, I went to North Central University, it's where Pastor Vicki and I met, and uh, when I first went there, I was literally a broke college student. I didn't have a dollar to my name, so when I first got on campus, I needed a job, and so I was looking for one, and I was passing by the security office uh, there on campus, and they had a, a notice that they were hiring patrol officers. So North Central University, they essentially hired from within the, the community there of students, and uh, I filled out an application, and I was like, maybe this is for me. You know, I can, I can be tough. So I filled out an application after inquiring, and they paid a decent amount, and uh, within a week, I was hired. And these were my responsibilities. Number one, the first responsibility or job duty was that I needed to basically do foot patrol and check all the exterior doors to make sure that the campus was secure. We were in a downtown location in Minneapolis, and there was crime there, so obviously you just want to make sure that nobody who's not supposed to be in the uh, classrooms and buildings were in. Another thing that I had to do was, since we were downtown, and sometimes crime happened, sometimes students would be walking alone on campus, and so they would call and ask for an escort, a walking escort, and sometimes I would have to walk students uh, along the campus to make sure that they were okay. And lastly, and this is the part I absolutely hated, I had to write parking tickets and parking violations for anybody parking in prohibited areas. Now, this wasn't something that I looked forward to for obvious reasons. And what would happen is, is if a student parked in a prohibited area, the first thing I wrote was a parking violation. It wasn't a ticket. It was just a warning. And so on that was like, you have to move your car within you know, two hours or you'll be towed or booted, things like that. And then I would go back, check on the car, and if it was still there, that's when I actually wrote the what? Wrote the ticket. And then to ensure that the security office was paid their fine, I put a boot on their car. And that really stunk. I hated doing that. A boot is essentially like a metal device that you clamp onto the front tire of the car to make sure that they can't move. And so that would ensure that they came to the security office and paid their fine. So after they paid their fine, I would go out, remove the boot. But the last step was that I had to fill out a report of what happened. We needed to make sure that the student knew why they received that boot and that parking violation. And one of the questions that we had to fill out on the report was reason for parking violation. And I kid you not, nine times out of 10, the student would say this and then we'd write in the report, student thought that they could park in the spot. Now this basically meant, this signified to us in the security office that they didn't know enough, they, that, that they essentially knew enough in their mind and in their, and in their heart that they didn't bother to ask the right questions. Can I park there? They didn't bother to read the clear signs all over the place that said no parking. They were essentially satisfied with what they knew. They didn't bother taking the initiative to figure out what was going on. So it ended up backfiring on them, and then it ultimately hit them in the pocket because they would have to pay that hefty fine. So this morning, maybe you've never received a parking violation. Maybe you're such an amazing driver that you've never actually received a ticket, right? Show of hands this morning. How many of you have actually received it? No, I'm just kidding. Let's call them out. Let's call them out. <laughs> um, but listen, we're all susceptible to falling into the trap of this feeling of feeling content with the knowledge and wisdom that you already have. Maybe you're like, oh, I know enough. I've lived this many years on earth. I know enough and I'm satisfied. You know, maybe you feel well enough prepared 
Maybe you feel self-sufficient. Maybe you feel like you know enough and have enough wisdom to navigate through our lives here, right? And not needing to grow in any wisdom. So this morning, we're continuing our series in the book of James, and we're going to look at this passage on wisdom. It's James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. And by the end of this teaching here this morning, we're going to know these three things about wisdom. Number one, we're going to know the source of our wisdom, where it comes from. Number two, the qualities of wisdom, what makes up wisdom, what sort of qualities does it have. And lastly, the result of wisdom. All right, so let's dive in this morning. James chapter 3, we're going to start with verse 13. Let's read it out. If you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. But the wisdom from above is, first of all, pure. It's also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It's full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and will reap our harvest of righteousness. Okay, first point here this morning. What is the source of wisdom? Where does it come from? And to answer this question, let's first acknowledge what is here in Scripture already. Where does it not come from? All right, so in verse 15, James says this. He says, for jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly. They're unspiritual and demonic. All right. So we know that true wisdom, God's wisdom, it doesn't come from unspiritual places. It doesn't come from earthly sources. This includes us here, living in the flesh, right? We're humans. Wisdom is not found where we tend to typically look for wisdom. Many of us, we look look for wisdom in the comfortable places of our lives. We tend to look within ourselves, like looking into our heart, looking and feeling our emotions, right? Sometimes we even look to replace wisdom with the advice of maybe like your favorite podcast host or maybe your favorite talk show host or maybe even a close coworker to you that you'd like to conversate with or maybe even a family or uh, a friend. Um, But these sources, they tend to and can lead us astray. We can receive good godly counsel and advice from them, but typically that's not the case. It's from where we receive it, right? So when we look in our hearts, though, This is what happens. We tend to look inside of our hearts for wisdom. But here's the truth. Our hearts will always lead us astray. Why? Because our hearts are deceitful. And if our hearts are full of deceit, then true wisdom can't be found there. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, it says this about our hearts. It says this human heart is what? The most deceitful of all things. The most deceitful of all things. And it's desperately wicked. Now, that's some strong language. But honestly, that's what our hearts are. They will deceive us if we look there and try to operate out of that. Now, if we look to our emotions or feelings, though, well, that would mean that wisdom would be constantly changing and inconsistent. Why? Because our feelings and emotions, they're fickle. And personally, my feelings are always changing, especially when I'm hungry. I mean, how many of you can relate to that? When you get hungry, you're like, oh, man, like... 
I'm a terrible person. I just want to lash out and I'm starving. Feed me. For me, when I'm feeling full from like a plate of spaghetti, I'm just being honest with you here this morning, I get sleepy, you know? I, I become a sleepy Sammy and, and a few hours after my nap or maybe three or four, I wake up and I'm hangry and I become a grumpy Gus. Wives, you know what I'm talking about, right? With your husbands when they get hungry, you guys are nodding your head. Husbands, you're always hungry. I know, you, you get hangry. But listen, the heart is also susceptible to pride. It's also susceptible to jealousy, right? And that is exactly what James is actually writing about here. He's dealing with that in the church. James is essentially addressing the teachers, and he's writing to the leaders in that early church. These teachers that he's writing to, they thought that they were superior. What's happening right now in this scripture passage is that these teachers and uh, leaders of the early church, they were jealous of the other apostles and disciples. These, these teachers thought that they were superior in knowledge, in wisdom, and in understanding, and they were prideful. They let it puff them up because they thought that they were better than everyone. They became arrogant. They're basically wanting to say that anyone who disagreed with their inner circle, they were inferior because they didn't know enough. They believed that they had wisdom to operate, and, um, and they thought that wisdom was basically an intellectual thing right? How intelligent you were. Now, why were they like this? And James calls them out here in this scripture passage, and it's essentially because they were bitter. They were jealous that other people were in the positions that they wanted to be in. They wanted to be the influencers. They wanted to be the teachers. They wanted to have that title, but they were acting childish. They were acting foolish, and they were letting their emotions get the best of them. They were letting their hearts lead them astray. And guess what, friends? Not much has changed, has it? This is over 2,000 years ago, or close to 2,000 years ago. Not much has changed. We still get like this. Our hearts are still offended like that. We still get jealous. We still go through those emotions, right? Now, this is a good reminder for us of how we tend to react when we don't get our way, when we see others get in positions that we don't, when others get promoted or others receive blessing, we tend to get like that as well. So let this be a reminder for us. All right, so we know where wisdom is not found. It's not found in our hearts. It's not found in our feelings or our emotions. It's not from here below on earth, but it's indeed from where? From above. The source of wisdom is God. It's God alone. And in verse 17, James states that wisdom, it comes from above. So if wisdom is found in God, then how do we actually receive it? What are the avenues that we actually receive this wisdom? We receive it in four ways. And if you're taking notes, feel free to jot these down. I'm going to do my best to sort of move through here sort of quickly. Number one, the first way that we receive God's wisdom is through reverence, through reverence. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says this from the ESV. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the origination spot. It's where it's birthed from. It's birthed from the fear of the Lord. Now, what does that actually mean? This is what it means. When we revere God, it means that we hold him in the highest regard. We hold him in the highest position. And it means that we have a healthy fear of him. Now, having a healthy fear of him doesn't mean that we run away scared. But this is basically acknowledging the vastness of God, how big God is, how enormous and great he is. And it's basically us understanding and acknowledging our position, our place as sinners, rescued by his grace. It's putting into position where things need to be. 
When we acknowledge this, our hearts are essentially uh, in a position to receive God's wisdom. So we receive it first through reverence, understanding our position, the vastness of God, and our place as sinners rescued by grace. The second one is conversion. Now, conversion means this. It means the moment that you come to believe and trust in Jesus as the Lord of your life. And when this happens, guess what? We're immediately in Christ. That means we're immediately in Christ at that point in time. And the Bible tells us that Christ became to us wisdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, it says this, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom for God, from God. Jesus is wisdom personified Our relationship with God through Christ means this, that we are assured wisdom, that we are assured wisdom. It's promised to us. And this this means this, not just at the moment of your conversion, of you accepting Jesus and believing him and loving him as your Lord, but it means that this is a continuous process. Yes, God will give us wisdom at conversion, but it's ongoing. We are assured constant, continuous wisdom from God. All right, number three, Scripture. We receive it through God's Word. Where would we be without God's Word? God's Word is truth, and God's Word is alive. It's powerful. It's life-changing and life-giving. It's full of wisdom, and the Bible repeatedly talks about this, and this is just one area that I'm going to read for you. In Proverbs Proverbs chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, says this, My child... Listen to me and do as I say, and you will have a long, good life. I will teach you wisdom's ways and lead you in straight paths. When you walk, you won't be held back. When you run, you won't stumble. Take hold of my instructions. Don't let them go. Guard them, for they are the what? The key to life. God's word is amazing, and it's wisdom for us. Many times when we look for wisdom or we were looking to gain in wisdom, first look to other sources rather than turning to God's word. And especially in our day and age, what is the first thing that we typically uh, turn to to gain wisdom or knowledge or information? Google, our phones. We pick up our phones. But let me encourage you. I'm preaching to myself too. We need to learn to first grasp and grab hold of God's word. We need God's word. We need to be teaching ourselves to study it. We need to be teaching ourselves to interpret Scripture. We need to learn to apply it to our lives. And friends, let me tell you, now more than ever, we need to become a biblical, literate church family. Not just us, but every single Bible-preaching, Jesus-loving church out there. We need to become more biblically literate. We need to know God's Word. Lastly, the last avenue that we receive God's wisdom from is prayer obviously, right? Yes, through prayer. We can gain wisdom from God, but we also, we receive revelation from God through prayer. I believe that, and we know that as we're praying, we know that God can download something to us or reveal a word of knowledge to us from him. But here's the deal. Prayer, this is what it does. It changes us. Prayer changes us. It goes against what our flesh actually wants. Our flesh doesn't want to pray. Our flesh doesn't want to admit it's weak. We don't want to admit that we need help or we need direction or seeking wisdom. That's not what our flesh wants. We want to be able what we want to do. We want to be self-sufficient. But through prayer, this is what happens. We cast aside our wants. We cast aside our needs. We cast aside our will, and we pray for what? 
God's will to be done in and through our life. We want what he desires for us. All right, so to recap, the source of wisdom, it's not from earthly things. It's not from us. The source of wisdom does not come from our hearts, feelings, or emotions. It comes from God and God alone. And we receive wisdom in four ways, through healthy fear of the Lord, through reverence, through conversion, scripture, and through prayer. Okay, second point this morning, the qualities of wisdom. So to understand the qualities of wisdom, we first must understand that being wise isn't simply knowing everything. It's not knowing or having a vast knowledge of everything. That's God's job. God knows that. God's outside space and time. He sees everything for what it is, and he knows everything at all times. But this is what it is. Being wise is this. It's making the right choices and navigating our lives led by the Holy Spirit, walking in step with God's will. That's being wise. But how do we know the wisdom How do we know the wisdom that we're receiving is actually true? How do we know that it's right wisdom? And thankfully, James here in this scripture passage, you'll see it. It's right in a row. There's seven qualities of wisdom that we can actually apply to our lives. We should be filtering all things that we consume and believe as wisdom. And here's the reason why. It's not out of fear. We don't do it out of fear. But we do it out of a genuine care for our spiritual health. Amen? This is why we filter things and we we discern things. Okay? It's for our spiritual health. I remember being in the eighth grade, and uh, I was taking an earth science course, I believe it was called, and we were in a segment on water quality. And in this water quality segment, we had the opportunity to test different types of water. We got to test acid rain, and I think some other types of rain, and the teacher would give us these things called what? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Litmus strips. And these litmus strips were in this little, like, container. You would take it out, and you would dip it in the water, wait a few seconds, and it would turn a color. Then you would take that strip and hold it up to like this spectrum of colors to see where it aligned on the spectrum of pH levels. I don't remember what the numbers were. were. I think it was like 1 through 8 or 1 through 10 or something like that. But this is the deal. The same principle we can apply to wisdom, of the qualities of wisdom. And since James lays out these seven qualities of wisdom, we can then put the wisdom that we receive through this sort of like litmus test to make sure that it is true and right wisdom. Now, here's the deal. This means that we need to use wisdom when testing our wisdom. We need to be using wisdom, God's wisdom, when testing our wisdom. We need to make sure that it aligns with God's word. So here it is. Here are the seven qualities of wisdom. Let's run through these together. Um, All of these qualities that I'm going to say, they're biblical definitions, but here's what we're going to do as well. This morning, I want to give you a practical application of these qualities. I believe that this is going to help us put things into perspective, sort of life application things of these qualities of wisdom. Okay, here we go. The first quality, as you'll see in your scripture, is this. Pure. Pure. What does purity mean? What does pure mean from like a biblical definition? It means this. It means moral purity, being morally pure. Purity is only achieved by this, though. It's only achieved by the shedding of Jesus' righteous, precious, holy blood on the cross for our sins. And since we are in Christ, we then have become pure. Purity sees Christ as the most beautiful. When we're focused on Jesus and his mission of making disciples, we're pure. Loving Jesus and also loving others. Okay, so let's apply this now. So this is just a for instance. This is just a life application. So maybe for you, if you're faced with a moral dilemma, 
This is what it means. It means that we choose the right thing over the easy thing. Let me say that again. We choose the right thing over the easy thing. Okay. The second quality is this. It's peace-loving. Peace-loving is this. It's having a peaceful heart and a peaceful life. Now, we know from previous uh, teachings and things like that that peace doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean absence of conflict or absence of war. This is what peace is. Christ is our peace. So we're full of peace because of Christ. Now, practically speaking, though, this is what it means. It means that we're level-headed. It means that we're not rocking the boat in conflict or when things are going wrong. It means that we're content. It means that we have to swallow our pride. It means that we should be choosing our words carefully, releasing our words intentionally. Now, let's apply this to our life. Let's apply peace-loving to life. Here's an example. If and when your boss changes your hours at work to your detriment, maybe that's happened in some of your lives recently, this is what it means. It means conducting yourself in such a way after this happens that you protect the peace of your workplace and not just your workspace and work area. This means that you protect the peace of your coworkers, of your boss, of those around you. You fight for their dignity and you don't try to rock the boat. Amen? All right. The third one, I think, is a uh, third one, gentle. Gentle essentially is the same. It's a synonym, synonym of meekness. Now, I don't use meekness in my life, and so we're going to be uh, looking at this word gentle. So, for example, Jesus. Jesus was gentle. While totally innocent, right, Jesus was persecuted as a criminal, and, and, and then he was uh, persecuted, convicted, and then put to death. But this is what Jesus didn't do. He didn't lash out. He didn't want to defend himself. Instead, he stayed focused on the mission of God for him and for you and me, knowing what needed to be happened to rescue us. That's gentleness. Now, let's apply gentleness to our lives. When conflict arises between you and a family member, maybe a spouse or even a child, a gentle person will do this. They'll choose their words carefully. They'll carefully choose their words and intentionally speak their words and then also practice patience while they're at it. A gentle person approaches conflict with kindness and will always make allowances for others. They will let people in their life inconvenience them and they will be okay if they make an error, things like that. Okay, the next one is willing to yield. Now, willing to yield is essentially the opposite, the straight opposite of being stubborn. How many of you guys are stubborn in here? If you know somebody, raise your hand and point to them right now. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, willing to yield essentially means being uh, the opposite of stubborn. It means being persuadable, though. Now, persuadable might not mean what you think it means. Actually, uh, the biblical way is uh, that it doesn't mean that we're easily swayed. It doesn't mean that we're easily persuaded and swayed to give in to wrong advice or wrong counsel. It's basically the balancing act the balancing act between being grounded in God's word yet open to hearing from others and their reasonable perspectives, okay? Now, let's put this into application here, a life application. Hear me out, church. You guys need to hear this. I need to hear this. So please open your ears and don't attack me. This means valuing others over their politics and being willing to hear when someone else's perspective is being talked about without being offended, and not putting a relationship in jeopardy because of their political views. We needed to hear that. I needed to hear it. 
Okay, mercy. Mercy. Now, when I was younger, I actually uh, correlated these two things, but um, it isn't. So mercy, it isn't pity. It's not pity. And James connects wisdom with action. He connects wisdom with action, just like he connected what? Works, or excuse me, faith with works. I gave it away. Uh, He says we can't be wise if we're not living out mercy and good deeds. Now, one of our values here at Trinity is rooted in mercy, and that value is service. We value service here at Trinity in this church. And service, we basically defined it as meeting needs when we see needs. Now, let's apply mercy to our lives. A service project that we just recently completed here at Trinity was our Giving Warmth campaign, where our church, by your generosity, collected, here we go, drum roll, please, 543 clothing items, 543 donated clothing items from you so that we could bless those through service and mercy who are less fortunate uh, than us. And so these uh, clothing items which we collected, they've already been boxed up and shipped down to NYC to a ministry that we prayerfully support and financially support down in New York City. And these clothing items are going to give warmth to the homeless community there in New York City. Can we give God praise for that? Amen. It's awesome. So thank you. Thank you for your generosity. So mercy is always connected to action. Mercy is always connected to action. We need a next step, and that next step is uh, uh, um, serving uh, when we see needs. Okay, the next one is showing no favoritism. Or another word for this is being impartial. So this is essentially not showing any type of favoritism at all. It's treating all people equally and fair and just. Impartial people, they live their lives with a consistent set of values and principles, okay? All right, so let's apply uh, impartiality to our lives. Uh, It means treating people around us the same. It's including here at church. And on Sunday mornings, maybe, we tend to always, what, want to gather with our friends, sit with our friends and family, and it's okay. That's okay to do. However, applying this principle of wisdom, this means that we should be intentionally connecting with people that we don't know or new visitors or guests and things like that to help them feel welcomed, loved, and valued. Okay? All right, that's impartiality. The last one is sincere. Now, this is a straight-up easy one to do. Basically, sincerity is um, living life without hypocrisy. It's being without hypocrisy. What you see is what you get at all times. They're authentic and they're genuine in their walk with Christ, right? All right, let's apply this one to our lives. If you declare Jesus as Lord... If you declare Jesus as your Lord, if you love Jesus and see him as, and behold him as uh, beautiful, this is what it means. It means that you are the same person outside of church than you are inside the church. It means you're the same. It means that you are who you say you are. That's sincerity. Okay, lastly, what is the result of wisdom? How do we actually know that we're exercising right and true wisdom in our lives? Now, everyone knows that the formula for becoming better at something means that we need to what? We need to practice it. We need to work at it. We need to get through these rhythms and make it a habit in our lives. And so we won't, listen, we won't increase in wisdom if we're not practicing wisdom. I'll say that again. We won't be increasing in wisdom if we're not practicing wisdom. So let's lean in and take a peek at what that actually looks like. Uh, This might be a a familiar Bible story uh, for you. In 1 Samuel, chapter 16, 
the people of Israel, uh, they were going through a transition in their lives with their kings. There was a shift in their kings. There was a guy named King Saul. He had been raised up, and he was anointed king over Israel. And however, over the course of his years, through his, um, uh, through his kingship, uh, as he was reigning on the throne, uh, these character flaws started to sort of pop up. He became dishonest. He was extremely prideful. And there were instances where he actually uh, lacked integrity. So after these flaws were revealed, God said in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, God says this. He says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And so God, he essentially rejects Saul as king. And Israel is uh, now uh, in the market for a new king to take the throne, and not just any king, but God was desiring for them uh, to put into place a humble and a faithful king for Israel. So a guy named Samuel, who was a prophet, he was essentially sent out by God to find and anoint this new king of Israel. So God sends him to this guy named Jesse, and Jesse, he lived in Bethlehem, and he had eight sons. And he tells Samuel that one of his sons will be anointed king. Now Jesse's boys were supposed to do this. They were supposed to pass by in front of the prophet Samuel. And God was going to tell Samuel, this is the new king, and you're going to anoint him as a new king of Israel. And so, you know, the prophet Samuel, he's probably thinking to himself that this new king is going to be, you know, big. He's going to look like a king. He's going to be big in stature. He's going to look tall. He's going to be strong and handsome. And so out walks Jesse's first son. And in verse 6 of chapter 16, it says this. It says, when they came, all of his sons, he looked on Eliab, that's one of Jesse's son, and he thought, surely, this is Samuel, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the what? The heart. So after Jesse's sons passed by Samuel, none of them were anointed king. So Samuel's like, what's going on here? Samuel was confused. And Jesse said that he had one remaining son left, but he was out attending to the sheep. He was a shepherd. He was out in the fields. And when David appeared, that's the other son, Samuel immediately anointed David as the new king over Israel. Now here's the question. What was it about David that God saw in him that made him choose David over everyone else? And not just Jesse's son. God could have made anyone, right, king over Israel. What made him choose David over everyone else? It was because God saw what? His heart. He saw his heart. God doesn't look at the outward appearance of man. He doesn't look at our qualities. He doesn't look at the clothes on your back. He doesn't see how nice of a haircut you have. He doesn't look at your jewelry. He doesn't look in your wallet. He, he doesn't care about that stuff. God looks at our hearts. And he doesn't just look at our hearts. He looks through our hearts. He knows how we feel. He knows our thoughts. He knows our thought life, our actions. He knows what we need. He knows everything about us. He knows how we feel. The Bible says David was ruddy. I had to look up that word. I've heard it my whole life. And I was like, I'm going to finally look up what this means. So I'm, gonna, I'm happy to share that with you this morning. Ruddy essentially just means that you're sort of reddish. 
you have this reddish look from being outside, like sort of like when your cheeks are rosy from being outside. It also says that David had nice eyes and was handsome. Careful, ladies. But God, he didn't pay any attention to those physical traits of David. The Bible later in Acts uh, chapter 13, verse 22 says this. And when he had removed him, this is Saul, this is God talking about Saul. He raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man what? After my heart, a man after my heart who will do all of my will. The heart is what God looks at. And when it comes to wisdom, as all things with God, wisdom too is a matter of the heart. If our lives are full of pride, if our lives are full of arrogance, it leaves no room for God to do what God wants to do in our lives. The result of wisdom is a heart attitude of this, of gentleness and of humility, of gentleness and humility. There's a pastor, you guys might know his name, is, his name is Rick Warren, and he sums up the word humility in a way that I think is helpful for us. It's been said here at Trinity, so you may have heard this before, but Pastor Rick Warren says this about humility. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Now, with this definition in mind, let's not take this as only doing for others while disregarding and neglecting ourselves, listen to me, self-care is absolutely important. Taking care of ourselves is important because we can only serve out of the reserve of what we have left, right? Self-care is important, but hear me out when I say this, that consideration of others, it doesn't cost us our effort, but it will cost us our pride. Let me say that again. Consideration of others, it doesn't cost us our effort or our energy, but it will cost us our pride because we're so used to serving who? Ourselves. We are. We need to set our pride aside so that we can serve and be considerate of others. So the last practical result of wisdom is this. Wisdom actually enables us to live. It does. Wisdom actually enables us to live our day-to-day -day lives, right? Wisdom does this. It helps us respond in every situation of our lives with a mind fully dependent on the wisdom coming only from God. This means that instead of relying on your head knowledge and worrying about your day-to-day -day lives, we instead rely on our heart knowledge of the infinite wisdom of God. That's what it means. God is all-knowing. He is all-wise and Anything you ever need wisdom for only comes from him. It only comes from him. You know, friends, as we start wrapping up this morning, I, I, I want to follow this up with a question to you. How are you doing with your heart-level trust and dependency on God? How are you doing with your heart-level trust and dependency on God for everything in your life? Are you operating out of your own knowledge? Are you operating on your, out of your own intellectual prowess? Maybe you're super smart. Maybe you can figure everything out. Are you only relying on yourself? Are you depending on God for the wisdom that you need to live out your transformed life in Christ to the fullest?
you know, God actually desires that we lean on him, that we depend on him for everything in our lives. He does. He desires that for us. And guess what? We can depend on him for that because of what Jesus has done for us. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, it says this. This is Jesus talking here. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and I am gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden that I give you is light. Here Jesus promises that if we make this actual conscious decision to yoke ourselves to him, to yoke ourselves to Christ, essentially unite ourselves to Christ, then we will learn what? We will learn gentleness. We will learn humility, that right heart attitude for wisdom. And we will find rest for our souls. Friends, are you feeling burdened this morning? Are there things in your life that you don't know how to deal with? Maybe you're in need of wisdom for a situation, or you need a breakthrough, or you're in search of a healing. Maybe you're just feeling down and depressed about your life. My encouragement to you this morning, and Jesus is beckoning you to yoke yourself to him. In Bible times, um, since they were a farming and agrarian community, they would essentially take an old ox when they were plowing fields and sowing fields, and they would yoke an old ox to a young ox. They did this so that the younger one could learn from the older one, so that it could keep pace with it. The older one was essentially training up that younger ox to do the work. By being yoked to the older ox, that younger one, it would learn the proper pace and how also to take direction from his master. And Jesus calls us to do this in our lives. He calls us to yoke ourselves to him. And by doing this, we're exercising wisdom, right? And here's the wisdom in it, yoking ourselves to Jesus. This is why. Because it strengthens us. Because Jesus bears the weight of our lives. He bears the weight of our lives. Now, how can this actually happen? How can Jesus bear the weight of my life? How can he bear the weight of your life? This is how. Because over 2,000 years ago, Jesus carried a wooden cross up a hill to a place called Calvary. And this cross, he carried like a yoke. A yoke was essentially a wooden sort of brace that they put over the ox to attach to the plow. And he carried that cross up to that hill of Calvary and he was nailed to that cross to make a payment for the sin of all the world, including my sin and your sin. And that's not all. God wants to carry everything in your life for you 
He wants to do that for you. He wants you to cast your anxieties on him. He wants you to cast your need of provision for finances over your life. He wants you to cast your feeling of uselessness, your weaknesses, our decisions, our enemies, our pain, our affliction, our illness, our aging, our feelings of wanting to give up. God is making a promise to you this morning that you can fully depend on him. Because why? Because he made the promise to you first. Let's close with this verse this morning, and then uh, we're going to come to the communion table. And I just, want this, I just want this verse to soak into your heart and into your spirit of how much God cares for you and how much he wants to carry you and carry your burdens. In Isaiah, it says this, and God is saying this, and he's saying it to you this morning. He says, I will be your God throughout your lifetime until your hair is white with age. I made you, and I will care for you, and I will carry you along and save you. God doesn't just want to carry your burdens. He wants to carry you. He wants to carry me. He has a work to do. Sometimes we feel like he can't work with us. Like, too messed up, God. I sin too much. I, I fail too much. But this morning, he says, let me carry you. Not just your burdens, but let me carry you.